Good evening. It's great to be with you all this evening. Um, I was just thinking we were we were praying in the back, and it's just what a privilege that we have two times on a Sunday. We get to just hear God's word, sing God's word together, um, and then you all sit here for like thirty to minutes to an hour and listen to preaching. I mean, it's incredible. It's a, it's a blessing, and so thank you for giving me the opportunity and. Um, it's just a pleasure to be here. One of my favorite, uh, anybody that knows me knows I like church history. Um, I'm, doing, I'm going to school for church history. Uh, one of my favorite figures from church history is Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. Anybody heard of Augustine before? So Augustine was an African bishop in the 300s and 400s, right? He wrote some of the most important works in the history of the church, um, it's often said that Augustine is the most important theologian of the Western Christian tradition. Uh, in fact, my wife and I love Augustine so much that we named our youngest son Augustine. His name is Graham Augustine. So if you're ever like, why do they call him Gus or Gussie? It's actually because his name, his middle name is Augustine. So Augustine's most well-known work uh, is this autobiography called the Confessions. And if you've ever read Confessions or if you've ever heard of it, it's this autobiography where Augustine's talking about his upbringing, his life, his struggles with sin. It's very relatable. Uh, It's a really easy read. And one of the things um, that has always struck me uh, when reading Confessions is early on he talks about going to school and his upbringing at school and how, as a Christian now, he looks back on this kind of ancient Roman society and how he was raised, uh, especially in the art of rhetoric, like that formal kind of ancient art of rhetoric, of persuasive speaking and argument. Listen to this quote. After he becomes a Christian, he looks back on that time at school uh, and learning rhetoric, and he says this. He says, The better one was, the craftier. Such is men's blindness, glorying even in their blindness. And now I was chief in the rhetoric school, whereat I joyed proudly and swelled with arrogancy. I don't know if you've ever met an argumentative person before. Maybe you are an argumentative person. Um, but we all, we all can feel this, right? We all know people or see it in ourselves sometimes, right? Those people who enjoy argument for the sake of argument. People who like arguing just to kind of rattle people, to get people shaken or angry or even doubting what they know to be true. It's these kinds of people that Augustine spoke about so many years ago, these kinds of people who are crafty with words and who use words to war against other people. They're these same kinds of people that we actually see in our passage today in 2 Timothy. People who just wanted to quarrel and fight about words. And then, as we'll see here in a second, on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, right, we get this very famous kind of call to Timothy to handle God's word correctly, to be a worker who's approved, rightly handling the word of truth. So I think the main point of our passage this evening, so I hope the main point of the sermon is this. Do not fight over words but rightly handle the word of truth. So again, 
Do not fight over words, but rightly handle the word of truth. And just for ease, we're going to break that down into two kind of big sections. So number one, avoid irreverent babble. Avoid irreverent babble. And two, present yourself approved. Present yourself approved. So let's jump in. Point number one, avoid irreverent babble. So just to quickly bring us up to speed, kind of where we're at in the context here um, in chapter two. So if you remember last week, uh, Michael was preaching for us and he was preaching through verses one through 13 of chapter two and this call to Timothy to suffer even for the sake of the gospel. There's kind of been these themes of suffering and weakness, right? Paul is writing this from prison. Um, So, uh, right, he talks about this kind of countercultural strength that Christians have. It's different from the world. The world thinks of strength one way. The Bible thinks of strength another way. You know, the Christian life is marked by things like suffering and obedience and hard work. So with that in mind, okay, Paul's set that stage, right? He turns directly to addressing some very specific problems that were going on in the Ephesian church that Timothy was the pastor of. So he's, he's talking about these, especially these false teachers uh, that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. So if you look there at verse 14, Paul begins right away with this charge to Timothy to deal with these false teachings. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So what were these false teachers doing? They were quarreling about words. To put it literally, they were participating in word fights. They were fighting with words. And what do these fights lead to? Well, they, right, he says, but it only ruins the hearers. The fighting leads to ruin. Verse 15 then shows us that famous passage again of what it looks like to rightly handle God's word. But before we get into that, let's skip down to verse 16 and you'll see Paul fleshing out a little bit more of what these word fights uh, were all about. I know when I was looking at this uh, passage as I was studying for this week, I initially was reading and, you know, don't quarrel about words, avoid irreverent babble. And initially I kind of thought, what are these words? You know, what what is it that he's talking about? So, so let's see what, what Paul means when he says um, not to quarrel about words. He says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And he goes on to, to name these two figures. We'll talk about them later, Hymenaeus and Philetus, as having swerved from the truth, right? They're telling lies about the resurrection. They're disturbing people's faith. So, at the end, what, what are these word fights? What does he mean when he says don't quarrel about words? He means divisive words, words that undermine the gospel, things that disturb other people's faith. They're divisive words meant to tear down and, and break other people, intentionally divisive. Before we kind of get into more meat of our passage, I think it's even just helpful to stop here, right, for a second and think, how, how could this apply to us? You know, how could, how could thinking about not quarreling about words 
apply to us today. Now, maybe we don't have people in our church overtly spreading lies about the the resurrection. I, I hope we don't. Maybe we do. But I think when it comes to avoiding quarreling words, I think that's something that as a church we always need to be reminded of, right? Paul actually kind of assumes this when he says, like, remind them of these things, charge them with these things. And then later on, as you'll see next week, there's even more of this kind of reminding them language, like, don't go back to be who you were, be these kind of people. So I think it's worth it for us to even think about, wow, do do we as a church need to be reminded not to quarrel about words? These type of word fights come from people who crave controversy. They love being controversial. That, uh, that's something I think we always need to be reminded of. How often are we tempted in overt ways? Maybe we don't even feel like it's overt, but in little ways to oh, just win that argument, just make that point, to make ourselves look good in, in how we present our, our talk to other people, to make others maybe even unnecessarily question how they were brought up in their Christian upbringing. Back in 1 Timothy, Paul calls out these same types of people, saying that they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels with words. So maybe for us, I don't know, maybe that means in certain things in our church, we should just make sure we don't crave controversy, whether that's in church budgets or building projects or what we do for the kids' ministry or how small groups should run. All these things are good things that we should, as church members, have opinions about, but we should not be unhealthily craving controversy in kind of giving our opinions of those things, as Paul would tell us here. So as we think about how we use our words, how we use them in the life of the church, just think these things are really applicable, how we speak to each other, how we love one another, how we are divisive with one another. These are things Paul seems to think every church needs to think about. Okay, look back at verse 16. What does this word fighting lead to? He says it leads to more and more ungodliness. It's like compounded debt that stacks up and stacks up on top of itself. Quarreling over words, it leads to kind of this idea of down and down and down into more and more ungodliness. It's interesting, right, that he repeats it more and more ungodliness. It's not just like a little fighting leads to a few negative things in the church, oh, but it could be worse. No, no, it gets worse and worse. Verse 17 says it spreads like gangrene, like a disease in the body. It doesn't just stay in one place. It's like a, a, on a pane of glass. You prick a, a corner of a pane of glass and it spiders through the whole thing. It doesn't stay in one place. The way that we speak to each other, the words we decide to use, they have a direct correlation to the holiness of the church. While irreverent babble leads to ungodliness, like gangrene through the body, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians about the exact opposite of that. In Ephesians 4, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So, whereas 
word fights lead to more and more ungodliness. Speaking the truth in love leads to growing up and up more into Christ. It's a beautiful kind of juxtaposition there. Before we move on to thinking about more about that kind of positive side, let's just take a second to, to look a little bit more at what these false teachers were saying, why it was so destructive. So Paul, in, in verse 17, right, he names these false teachers by name, calls them out, Hymenaeus and Philetus. These letters were often read, right, publicly in the church, so could you imagine sitting next to those guys and you're like, oh my goodness, they just said their name. So he's naming them by name. We're actually redu- uh, introduced to Hymenaeus back in 1 Timothy. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So it sounds like Hymenaeus didn't learn his lesson from that uh, church discipline situation he was involved in, and it looks like he's come back into the church with this new sidekick. So instead of Alexander, like in First Timothy, here in Second Timothy, we see this other guy, Philetus. And if you, if you look back at verse 18, you can see exactly what they were saying. What, what was it that was so destructive to people's faith? They were saying that the resurrection had already happened. That is the, the final resurrection, the, the, right, the great last day judgment where uh, they, they were saying that's already happened. Believers aren't being resurrected in the end. They're resurrected now spiritually rather than physically in the future. The harmful thing about this over-spiritualizing of the resurrection is that it actually, according to Paul, cuts to the core of the gospel itself. And your initial reaction might be, okay, I get that. We, we need to believe in the physical resurrection, but is it really that bad? Um, well, if the physical resurrection of believers wasn't going to happen this is the link that that Paul makes, then maybe the physical resurrection of Christ didn't happen either. According to these false teachers, if there was only a spiritual resurrection, then there's no need for Christ to be resurrected physically. Maybe he's just resurrected in our hearts. This is actually what liberal theology today teaches. Very, very common teaching. That Jesus wasn't resurrected physically. We know miracles in the Bible. You've got to take them with a grain of salt. He's resurrected in our hearts. That's what liberal theologians say today. This, again, it cuts at the very heart of the gospel and to our assurance before God. Listen to what one commentator says. I just found this really helpful about this false teaching about the resurrection. He says, The damning thing about this teaching, apart from its plain untruthfulness, is that it attacked the reality of Jesus' physical resurrection. The physical resurrection of believers is so linked to Christ's that that if Christians are not physically resurrected, that would prove that Christ had not been bodily resurrected either. And before we kind of say, oh, that, that link's kind of a bit extreme, Scripture actually makes this exact link in 1 Corinthians Right? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, just like Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying here, then not even Christ has been raised. <clears throat> and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. To say what Hymenaeus and Philetus was saying, cut to the core of the gospel. It was, as they say, a gospel issue. Given the context of this letter as well, right? What we were talking about before with suffering and Paul being in chains, there's other implications to this false teaching about the resurrection. It was that Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying, hey, if if the resurrection has already happened spiritually, we receive all the benefits of the resurrection now. Health, wealth, privilege, life is easy now. This was a false good news, and it contradicted what Paul and Timothy were saying, because they're suffering, Paul's calling Timothy to suffer, he is suffering. Then you have Hymenaeus and Philetus over here saying, if the resurrection has already happened, we don't need to suffer in this life. Paul wasn't experiencing the health and wealth that Hymenaeus and Philetus were promising. No wonder this was upsetting the faith of some, as our text says. Have you ever been in those situations where There's kind of two people that you trust and one is telling you one thing and one tells you the other thing. And it's just difficult. It's difficult to know, oh, what's what's going on? And at the end of the day, you just end up being more confused than anything. That's what's going on here. It was disturbing the faith of people to have this double-mindedness about them. Let's be clear, brothers and sisters, the gospel is clear. Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. He is alive and well. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us in his body, his real, physical, real body. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Christ, you can have a, a better hope than these, this irreverent babble, than these word fights could ever give you. You can have a better hope than what they were promising of a health and wealth and prosperity now. And that better hope is that in spite of suffering, in spite of pain and hard things, the Lord knows who are His, as verse 19 says. He loves His people. He loves them so much that He became man. He suffered death. He was raised from the dead. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you must put your faith in this Christ or you will have to carry the punishment for your own sin. For those of us here this evening who are believers, this gospel is just as glorious today as it ever was, isn't it? That despite our sufferings and pain, We have a future hope to look forward to, the the hope of the resurrection, a future resurrection where we'll be with God forever in peace, beholding Him as He truly is, seeing God face to face. It's a beautiful thing. Several things I think we can draw from this point about irreverent babble. First, it, it seems kind of obvious, but I think it's just helpful to point out and think about is that if Paul's instruction to Timothy and and therefore to the Ephesian church is anything to go by for us as a local church today, then 
a simple application is just we need to take these things seriously. We need to take them seriously enough to call them out and even call them out by name if we need to, just like Paul does here. If someone was to ever come into our midst here at Great Vic and start upsetting people's faith, start participating in those word fights to undermine people's faith with irreverent babble, it's right and biblical for us to put that to an end. This is why Matthew 18, right, the church discipline passage is in the Bible. Matthew 18 and a biblical understanding of church discipline is what we see here. It's what it seems like Paul used in 1 Timothy. So if this ever was going to happen, we can be comforted. We have building blocks for these things um, in Scripture. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul names these people by name and then says you need to deal with it. Second, this idea of avoiding irreverent babble or of avoiding word fights, it can instruct us well, I think, how to live life with each other. We've already talked just a little bit uh, about kind of the negative side, like what we shouldn't do, how we shouldn't talk to each other. But on the positive side, just think of all the things that this kind of implicitly tells us, right? What are some of the ways that we can speak the truth in love to each other? What are some of the ways that we as a church can do the opposite of what these false teachers were doing, tearing down people's faith? So what would that be? Building up each other's faith. What are some ways that we can do that? Maybe we can ask people heartfelt, real questions. Not just, how's work, how's school, how's the family? Those are good questions. You should know about people's lives. But ask, how are you growing in Christ? What if it was the norm that throughout the week we would seek each other out through notes or messages or calls and not just shoot the breeze, again, it's a good thing to do that, but to tell people how the truth of the gospel is affecting your everyday life. Tell people even the struggles that you have. How God's grace is working in you. That would be the exact opposite of what these false teachers were doing, right? They were undermining the gospel, weakening people's faith, making people question their faith. Instead, what we should do as a local church is uplift the truths of the gospel with each other, strengthen each other in our faith. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of of a church. Okay, so that was point number one, avoid irreverent babble. Point number two, present yourself approved. Point number two, present yourself approved. <clears throat> so look back up, uh, if you will, to verse 15. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. So Paul is saying, instead of this word fighting, right, instead of this irreverent babble, which leads to more and more ungodliness, present yourself approved. Do not be ashamed. Rightly handle God's word. And you can see how that's just the opposite of what these false teachers were doing. They were wrongly handling God's word, showing themselves to be not approved, showing themselves to be worthy of shame. Paul tells Timothy that his job is not to quarrel over words like those people do. 
It's not to be divisive. It's not to win arguments. Timothy's task, and I think the task of every Christian, is to rightly handle God's word. Rightly handling carries with it this idea of straight or kind of without deviation, undiluted. So it's almost like Paul's telling Timothy to give the word without deviation, straight, undiluted. Have you ever had, um, I, I find this as a parent all the time, trying to explain things to my kids. But have you ever tried to kind of explain something, not just complex, but even hard, hard to explain to somebody else, and you soften it in such a way where it kind of loses its actual truthfulness. You soften it too much, uh, and then what you end up saying actually isn't true. That's not what the person who, who is, uh, that's not what Christians are called to do here when they handle God's word. While the false teachers were intentionally confusing people and trying to upset people with words, the one who rightly handles God's word does the opposite. They seek to bring clarity, to instruct patiently and carefully, right? Giving the word undiluted, straight. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible's not hard to understand sometimes. Uh, sometimes it is. But it is to say that it's the job of the pastor not to kind of lean into to something being like really unclear and, and make people not trust the word. It's their job to be patient and seek to bring clarity. This is why right preaching, right teaching, right doctrine, they are so important, aren't they, for the well-being of a local church. Paul is saying that these false teachers have bad theology about the resurrection, isn't he? The way to combat that is by having right theology, good theology. Don't scoff at the idea of robust doctrine or sound theology. Theology or the study of God, the study of the things of God, his world. That's how we guard the church against false teaching like this. This is why churches should desire pastors and elders who are well-trained, well-versed in the Bible and theology and history so that they can rightly handle the word of truth, to fend off wolves who try to bring in false teaching. That doesn't mean that elders are, are required to have a Bible college degree or a seminary degree or a theological college degree. That's not what training means. But it does mean that it's a biblical command that they know their stuff. I think Christians can sometimes get scared at the thought of robust theology or sound doctrine, but brothers and sisters, if, if we want to be people of the book, we need to know the book. We need to rightly handle the word of truth. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. Sound doctrine's at the heart of a healthy local church. Listen to what Paul tells another young pastor who he's mentoring, Titus. In talking about the duty of a pastor or an elder, same thing, Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. It's interesting, really similar here, right? So sound doctrine, 
is there, it's important to have, and it helps fend off false teachings. <clears throat> if we're not rightly handling the word, we can't expect to be very good people of the word. If pastors don't have sound doctrine, how can they rebuke those who contradict it? So, some points of application here. As a congregation, as Great Vic, if Jimmy comes up and tells you about another Puritan book that he's reading, instead of kind of scoffing at that and just saying, oh, that's another thing that Jimmy does, isn't that funny? Think, oh man, like Jimmy cares about theology. I'm really, really glad that one of my elders is taking the time to read the Puritans. Maybe you can even ask him, can I read this with you? I'm sure he'd be willing to do that. Steve just recently got done doing an advanced uh, degree in theology in the States. Some might look on that and say, oh man, like why would he do that? Isn't that taking time away from local church ministry? Isn't that taking time away from me? But according to Paul here, it's a pastor's duty to keep learning more, to rightly handle the word of truth. Studying theology is a pastoral discipline. The more your pastors love God's word, the more they'll love sharing God's word with you. Sharing it with you, as Paul says here, straight, without deviation, undiluted. All right, finally, let's look at verse 19 and how Paul ends this section. So after setting out for us the importance of rightly handling uh, the word and the dangers of false teaching. How does he kind of end this short section? Look at verse 19. He says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God's firm foundation stands. In other words, does... <laughs> Life in a local church is crazy, but don't lose hope, okay? These false teachers are coming in, right? Oh, are they going to sway everybody? What's going on? And Paul reminds Timothy, God's firm foundation stands, right? Don't lose hope. True believers in the church, they won't ultimately listen to this false teaching. They won't be swayed by the word fighting. They'll stand firm. And then he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, uh, the false teachers leading people into more and more ungodliness, they're not departing from iniquity, right? But we as a true church, we, what we do, that's what we do. We run away from sin. Those who name the name of the Lord, they hate sin. They hate what separates us from God. So it's almost like Paul is closing with this reminder of just kind of what the Christian life is, right? That you have man's, God's perspective and man's perspective, right? So from God's perspective, we can trust his firm foundation stands. He knows who are his. He'll keep them till the end. And then at the same time, from man's perspective, we know we must flee from sin and ungodliness. It's kind of similar, right, to Paul's words in Philippians, right? He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's the man part. For it is God 
who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Very similar. It's just kind of saying, hey, you need to flee from sin. (laughs) That's a serious thing. But at the end of the day, God's firm foundation stands. You can't look back on the rest of your life and say, oh, I did such a great job killing all the sin in my life. I'm just gonna take all the credit for that. No, it's reminding you, no, it is God who is working in you. This is what the worker approved by God understands, that God keeps his promises and we live devoted to him. Isn't that amazing that God calls us to holiness but also promises to help us in our holiness? We must strive to live a godly life, but again, at the end of the day, we don't look back and we just say, wow, look at, look at all the good I did. We know it's all from God. It's his firm foundation that stands. This is what those arrogant people in Augustine's day didn't understand. These people obsessed with being crafty and arrogant in their arguments. To them, it's all about how we present ourselves on the outside, To those who quarrel about words, it's all about how well you speak, how convincing your argument is. But Scripture provides us a really different picture, doesn't it, for the one who handles God's word correctly. The person who handles God's word correctly, it's not about their word fighting. It's not about their way with words. It's about the person that they are, isn't it? The person who fights with words leads to more and more ungodliness. And yet the person who rightly handles God's word is approved before God. As followers of Christ, it's about how God has been growing us more and more into his image. And only then, as those who are transformed, not of our own effort, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, can we come before God with this confidence as workers with no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Let's pray. Lord, as we have thought about your word, about handling it rightly, about fighting and how that leads to ungodliness, Lord, would you just remind us of ways that we need to, even in little ways, grow in how we speak to one another how we love each other in our families, and our work, in our church. And Lord, would we be a church that's just marked by right handlers of the word with no need to be ashamed, who trust your firm foundation? Would the world look in on us as Great Vic and say, oh, those are Bible people. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. All right, now as we... Um, have spoken about this, this truth, about um, speaking truth with one another. Let's think about how we can lock arms with each other in the Christian life, life of unity with each other as we sing this wonderful song, uh, O Church Arise. Let's stand and sing.
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in his peace.